0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno, and today we have a guest who is very, very special to me. His name is John Brockman, and he's an oncology certified registered nurse at a large academic medical center here in Chicago, which shall be revealed shortly. He spent most of his 20 year career working with oncology patients, and recently he started a master's degree in healthcare quality and patient safety at Northwestern University. He's on Facebook and LinkedIn. He also wants you to know he's on Insta, but he's not so Insta savvy. So I, I just finished this interview. I'm, I'm stumbling over my words because this was just such a special interview. And I finished the interview and I went upstairs and I just wanted to hug my husband. And I, I said to him, I feel so unworthy of the love and the light of some of the people in my life. It was right after this interview where I just... I know that you're going to feel like you just spent a bunch of time in the sunlight after hearing what John has to share. Um, and I just, you know, I had that feeling of feeling like unworthy and not good enough. And I just hugged my husband and I'm like, I want to let this go. And he's like, yeah, you're totally worthy. And everyone is worthy of being in your life. And it's it's this exchange of energy that makes the relationships that I have so special. So this is a really special episode to me, and I am 100% certain that you're going to enjoy listening just as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. So please enjoy listening to my interview with John Brockleman. Hello, John. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer.
1: Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you today?
0: I am... Let me sit in that for a second. How am I today? I'm actually pretty good right now. I've been really stressed and like trying to figure out how to not be stressed. But right now I'm not because this is fun.
1: (laughs) I understand the stress. I am trying to work on. I've got two papers to write. And Mm. so I've, I've been doing research and so I get you.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's start out by you telling the listeners who you are and what you do.
1: I'm John Brockelman. I work at a... Should I say the name? I work at a large academic institution. <laughs> I'm, I'm a registered nurse. I've been here in Chicago since 2001. I've worked most of that time at this institution. I'm a clinical coordinator. I work with cancer patients. And yeah, that's basically... That's
0: what I do. Yeah. I mean, you can say the name of the organization. I think it's the, okay. you know, potential like fear of being a representative of an organization and having them get like, like, mad at you. But like, nobody's going to hear this. Who's going to like...
1: Yeah, and I think right. I'm a fairly decent representative.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, it's Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Yeah. Um, and I love working there. I can't imagine working for another healthcare institution. And so, yeah.
0: I'd love to have you tell your story to folks about what made you become a nurse. How did you get to that point?
1: You know, out of high school, I was kind of struggling with what I wanted to do with my life. And I think I always I kind of felt through high school that I charmed my way through. I was a smart kid. Mm. I, got, I got good grades, but I really thought that I didn't think I was that smart. And a couple of years out of high school, I started working at this nursing home in Puyallup, Washington, and really fell in love with caregiving. Mm. And all the nurses that I worked with kept saying, John, you are, you know, you're too smart for this. You need to go back to school. You need to get your, you know, nursing degree. And, And I didn't, you know, I didn't really take them seriously. And then I ended up going on a road trip with my first partner and we ended up stopping in Silver City, New Mexico to visit my cousin who had just moved there from Seattle. She has, or she had bought this house and It was right around the corner from this little university, and she said, "Guess what? They've got a nursing school there." I know that you're kind of Mm. interested in that, and that's how. So I ended up going to school at Western New Mexico University in Silver City, New Mexico. It's totally obscure. It's way up in the mountains, and I mean, I never even made it back to the Seattle area, which is where I was living at the time. Except I just went there briefly to get like stuff out of storage, and then moved back. Mm. So I was there for four years in Silver City, New Mexico, and actually right away just excelled in school. Like I was a straight A student. Mm -hmm. I was living in this, you know, Silver City is not a very big town. So there were no distractions for me. And so I concentrated on my on my schoolwork and thought that I wanted to be like an emergency room nurse. That's yeah, I watched a lot of uh, a lot of ER. (laughs) And a lot of those shows growing up that, you know, anything like action oriented, like lots of adrenaline, you know, um, Mm -hmm. trauma, imagining like a Monty Python scene where blood (laughs) is is squirting everywhere. And I'm like right in the middle of it, like, okay, give me a piece of gauze or, you know, give me some forceps. That's the kind of life I imagined. Wow. And I was doing a rotation for school in an oncology clinic there in Silver City and I had no preconceived notions of anything. I didn't even know, you know, basically what cancer was. I just knew I was going to go watch some chemotherapy. And this lady walked in, she was with her husband and she was this beautiful blonde and he was this gorgeous, like tall cowboy you know, with like the cowboy boots and the big Stetson hat and a big belt buckle. And they were this stunning, beautiful couple. And anyway, I could tell right away that he was just so uncomfortable. And she was like trying to compensate for his Mm. um, his uncomfortability or Mm -hmm. his discomfort. And so it finally like it was kind of awkward. He ended up leaving and just saying, well, call me when your treatment's done. I'll come back and get you. And she looked totally, she was crestfallen. She was hurt. Mm. And so we sat for six hours while she got her treatment that day. And we talked about everything from, you know, her fear of of having cancer, her fear about dying. Mm. She was, you know, she was in her 30s. She had lost one of her breasts and, you know, the feelings of not being a whole woman. She was afraid of losing her hair. And she had this beautiful head of blonde hair long, long down her back Mm. on hair. So part of that day we spent like packing her head in ice to keep the blood kind of shunted away from her scalp so she wouldn't lose her hair from the chemo.
0: I didn't even know that's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I left that day, and I was like, I found my calling. (sighs) I found my calling, and it's funny. I, you know, Silver City is a small community, but we had a. I found a small gay community there to be a part of while I was in school, and. Mm -hmm. We were in this other little town about 50 miles away from Silver City at a barbecue at a friend's house. And they said, uh, my friend Charlie said, hey, John, we're going to go. We got to go. Him and his partner were famous for like helping people out. Small tasks. His boyfriend was a a master woods craftsman, like made cupboards. Hmm. And anyway, they they were really involved in the community down there, but they they needed to go install this ceiling fan. And so I'm like, oh, I'll go along for a ride. And we get to this lady's house and it was that woman. (gasps) No. From the chemo clinic. Holy shit. That was like, you know, a year and a half or so later. And she walks out on a porch and I was like, oh, my God, I know her. And when she saw me, she was like, Oh my God, you're the nurse that gave me my chemo that day. And she gave me this big hug and she said, you know, you have no idea how much you helped me that day. And I, that was like my call from God. (laughs) Like this is, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so that's what I did. I graduated in 99 and I got a job in Albuquerque and moved to Albuquerque. And that's where I started my career. I was an oncology floor. And I worked there for two years before I moved to Chicago and started working at Northwestern Memorial Hospital.
0: That story gave me chills. Holy shit.
1: Yeah. Oh my god. I'm like trying not to be choked up. But to have such a profound experience, like right at the beginning of my career, I knew that I was in for something really special.
0: Right. Oh, my God. That's just so amazing. And, you know, you kind of talked about it as like a like that was God telling you. And when you get a message that's so fucking clear like that, it's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) You know, when people say somebody said once, actually, it was it was a patient in our IOP recently, you know, and he's like kind of figuring out his higher power stuff. And he was like, yeah, you can talk to God, but he doesn't talk back to you. And I was like, uh Mine does. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Maybe you're not listening, but it does. You know, I'm trying not to gender God anymore, but God does talk back. And that is a fucking beautiful example of it.
1: Yeah. Sometimes you don't you don't hear it right away. Sometimes you have to live a little and then you get to look back on an experience and realize, oh, my God, that was God talking to me.
0: Yeah. Damn. You know, it's funny. I find that a lot of the people that I interview... They end up on their career path. And it is not that they chose it, but they were chosen. And sometimes it's, you know, they just felt a pull or a call. And sometimes it's these like brilliant, you know, lightning bolt sort of moments that, oh my, like, oh my God, yeah, this is it. This is totally it, you know? Yeah. So I am going to tell on you a little bit. OK, cool. because you, you're like, OK, I can take it. But, you know, before we started the recording, you were like, oh, I don't know. You know, do you, is, she, is she sure she really wants me on here? Because I don't know. I'm different from a lot of your guests. But like you just proved exactly why you're supposed to be on here, because that's an incredibly an inspiring story, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that. Especially at that time in my life, I was just really open and wanted to receive something bigger than myself. And I was able to. So I was just I was just feel I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. And not only am I good at my job, I love it. Yeah. And, and that has been like the best thing in my in my life for all these, you know, 20 years.
0: Mm Well, let's let's shift into the question about being a healer then, because I 100 percent see you as a healer. And that's one of the reasons that I did ask you to be on the podcast. But I'm curious your thoughts about the word in in application to what you do.
1: I was I was writing down some notes to answer your questions and stuff. And my first of word course, was...
0: overprepare. <laughs> <laughs> OK, John, I'm... you get it. You get an A plus. OK. <laughs>
1: oh, thank you. I was so worried. Mm. Of course, I want this to be like the one podcast that just blows everybody away. Yes. you know, um, anyway, but <laughs> I wrote down blasphemy because, um, mm. you know, I work in a hierarchical system.
0: Yeah.
1: And so with the doctors up on top and then the nurses mm-hmm. and then whoever else falls down below. So social and, workers and down
0: that, at the bottom. Yeah, yeah
1: totally. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I think, I, I think we're on the same field, you and me, mm. you and the social workers, we're, we're like fighting the good fight, but I think that really, The doctors spend a few minutes with the patients every day and kind of have a list of problems that they, I don't know, that they prescribe meds for and they get tests for and they figure it out. Sometimes, But the nurses are the ones that are at the bedside. Mm -hmm. Like I used to joke with my friends that if you wanted to know Florence Nightingale, come to dinner with me. (laughs) That's that's how I really feel like I don't care how busy I've ever been in my in my career. Like it has always been important to me to sit and talk and hold hands and to cry with and to Mm. be I don't know, to just be open to the experience of connection and you know I don't even think it's crazy that I picked oncology because these patients are Mm -hmm. these are chronic medical problems. They are in and out of the hospital. Some of the outcomes are good, but most most of the time they're not. And so I get to meet these people from sometimes from the day they're diagnosed until the Mm. day they pass until the day they pass away. (sighs) And sometimes I get to see them on their last Cycle of chemotherapy after we've told them that their cancer's gone. So, you know, healer, I, yeah, Mm. I think that the experience of going into a room and having an open heart and an open mind and to know that i have i have something inside my heart that this patient needs that crosses all like whatever you know gender race socioeconomic status like all of those mm-hmm. things it's just me and another human being in a room and i might have a list of tasks that i need to complete or a, a bottle of meds that i have to pass but i always make time for that human connection and i think in that way that's how i have been most successful and yes. that's where i found my calling and that's how i feel fulfilled
0: mm-hmm. in my I've, what you described as the tools that you have for healing it has nothing to do with intellect it has nothing to do with how much you know about medicine it has nothing to do with any of that and that's why i think you know some doctors are not healers because they uh, don't they don't know what actual medicine helps people and yep. you
1: do. And that that's the thing. Like they say nursing is an art and a science. Yep. And, just you know, like
0: therapy. Yep. Yeah.
1: Just, just like therapy. You have all the evidence base, the empirical data and all, you know, all of that stuff that's been tested and retested and found to be true. And then you have the art part of it, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, I was helping a patient one day get comfortable in bed and I was just simply placing pillows under her arms and maybe like helping her turn on her side or whatever it was in this doctor doctor was watching me and she was just like oh my god if i'm ever in the hospital i want you yeah john to tuck me into bed because there's this intuition that comes from within me that i mean not that i would ever say i i know what's best for the patient mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm something like that, it is an intuition. And, Mm -hmm. and that's where, you know, that's where the art comes in. Like I am artistically placing this IV and when it's done, like there, I haven't spilt a drop of blood. I have, it's taped immaculately and it looks, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks like a piece of art Yeah, (laughs) in a really obscure kind of way.
0: No, no. I I mean, it makes total sense to me. And Part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I want people to talk about the art of... Being human, really, you know, because, you know, we can learn things, we can achieve, we can, you know, make money and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, that's not what makes us happy. That's not what makes us healthy and whole and fulfilled. It's connection. It's seeing and being seen by another human being. And what you just described was empathy. And I think of empathy as an art. We know the components of empathy, obviously, but in order to truly practice it, you have to be able to remove your own shit in order to meet someone where they are. Yeah, totally. And it's that's exactly what you described there.
1: So my superhero talent at work is starting Mm. IVs. And I don't know, you know, I can remember I struggled with it when I first started, but I had a really good teacher, a really patient teacher. And so now, you know, patients will, I don't know, they'll get stuck six times. Mm. And I will walk in the room and they'll be like, are you good at this? And I always say, well, you know, I've done it a few times. And then as I'm just talking to them, just normal conversation, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: the Ivy gets put in, in one, you know, one yeah, stick yeah. and and they're like, oh my God, you know, so I my didn't name even goes, know it
0: was happening. Yeah. I really didn't
1: know it was happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're done already. It took less than five minutes. And then, you know, my name goes on the board. And of course that, that <laughs> right. the, gold, the gold stars are good, but it's actually that I don't want to get stuck. Yeah. six times for somebody to put an IV in. And I think that, you know, like, I don't know, I was blessed with the talent and, you know, that's, that's one of many, thankfully, but.
0: Yeah. And this whole conversation, to be totally honest with you, it's making me think about my experience with my mother when she was dying and this wasn't there for her, you know? And what I saw at the hospital was everyone was so busy and what i wish someone would have said and my husband finally my husband said it but i wish that a medical professional would have come in and, and said to our family your mom is dying you know this is what's happening and you know we should be talking to the doctor about this we should be talking to hospice about this and instead everybody was just busy rushing around and there was one night where I I spent the night with my mom because it was very clear that she needed more help than just a nurse coming in once every hour and I remember like calling the nurse in the middle of the night and like the nurses seeming kind of exasperated and I wasn't mad at them because like I, I know enough to know that the system is broken and that they were probably understaffed, but it was such a disservice to my mother in her last days to not have that care.
1: And unfortunately it happens. Mm -hmm. I know like we have patients, I I don't care who you are. I deal with a number of patients every single day and I have every single day for 20 years. And the scariest part of patient's journey is the end. Yeah, and and usually, like, I feel like pa- the patients really have the easiest part, especially if once they've reached that point of where they're accepting what's going on, or if they've just all of a sudden become so sick that they're unconscious or unaware. It's the family that needs the help. It's the family that needs guidance yes. through through the last process until you've witnessed it a few times. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's scary for it's scary for nurses too because we're not really prepared. <laughs> not coming out of school, you're not prepared to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: no, <laughs> I imagine that, not.
1: And it's like, it, you know, it can be frantic or it can be so peaceful and so beautiful. And that's where the knowledge about the dying process comes in handy. Like mm-hmm. I can walk into a room. I got, I got called a few weeks ago. The nurse was like, oh, my God, you know, the, the, the family's freaking out. And and the patient's starting to breathe weird. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course, she was a DNR. We knew she was like, they say, actively dying. Yeah. And, you know, really what the patient needs in that moment is like a little bit of morphine, maybe mm-hmm. some oxygen, but usually not. They, the morphine usually allows the breathing to calm down mm. or to be easier for the patient. And, you know, if you get gurgles, there are medications we can give to, you know, to dry up secretions so that there's not that like, quote unquote, death rattle. And if a nurse is, let's say, experienced, like I walked into the room and I said, don't, you know, like, don't, don't be scared. Mm-hmm. this this happens let's make her look comfortable in the bed and yeah. then give her these medicines and I guarantee within 15 minutes that she will appear comfortable and that makes everybody else comfortable and that's what we did and but it takes you know you you need knowledge about that stuff and and mm-hmm. experience and I'm really sorry that your experience in that in that process was what it was yeah
0: and like you said that's not it's not uncommon and that happens yeah. all the time Let's shift into the question about wounded healer and how you feel about that cuz I know I know there's some stories to tell around that.
1: You know, I think I relate more to the wounded part and I've listened to all of your I've listened to all of your podcasts.
0: <laughs> oh, you're a super fan. And, Thank you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, you know, because I'm interested in that too. Like I really I think the wounded healer kind of sums me up perfectly. My journey like my life has been just a series of, you know, starting in childhood, my parents getting divorced at a young age and, yeah. and being the son of, a, of an abusive alcoholic father who mm-hmm. got, dry, who got dry after my parents got divorced yeah. and suffering some abuse from my stepmother and never feeling fully accepted by my father. Like I was, I grew up this little gay kid who spent most of my life just trying to be loved or, you know, just wanting to be loved. And like I shared with another therapist that I worked with recently that I think when I was a baby, I woke up singing every morning, like singing at the top of my lungs and I have pictures of me in a crib. The song is coming out and I can remember my, my mom always said like, I was always on my tippy toes and I was always singing and my dad did not know what to do with that. And so Uh, uh, I was born with a personality that was bigger than my body.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: And I could fill up a room and... You know, that was growing up, like just struggling so hard to be accepted, knowing that I was different, feeling that I was different. I got started getting bullied when I was in grade school. And that started, mm-hmm. I mean, it, once it started, I think it happened like every day until I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. In my, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, there were no, you know, there weren't gay characters on TV. There were no, right. there was no support. You know, I can remember once in high school being like teased by this football player. And it was just like vulgar. And my chemistry teacher was standing at the chalkboard, like Mm. writing equations up there. And I mean, there's no way that he could not hear. Mm. The class wasn't that big that he couldn't hear what was going on, but he did nothing. And Mm. this guy like hammered me into the ground. You know, just, I mean, it was all all verbal. And I finally got up and just left class because I started crying and Mm. there was nobody to stand up for me. And so, I don't know, that was traumatic. And then once I realized or knew that I wasn't going to not be gay and kind of accepted that, I came out to my family. And mm-hmm. this was in the the early 90s. And the first thing my mom said to me was, well, when you die of AIDS, I'll take care of you. Right. And she's a fundamental Christian. And so I'd grown up with that as well, like the, the hellfire and brimstone. And yep. like, I knew I had this secret. And I knew I could never tell either because I knew that like I would go to hell. And then AIDS came around and that was going to be God's punishment for, right. for all the fags in the world. And I and I can remember at nine thinking, I'm going to die of AIDS because I'm gay and mm. telling myself that in the, in the mirror. Yeah. And then like I came out and of course I met somebody that was HIV positive and I became HIV positive within the first mm. year of us being together. And that was so that was like 1995. And at that time, there were no meds yet. And, you know, it was pretty much it was still a death sentence and people were still dying. And I can remember thinking, well, okay, so I have 10 years to live. So what do I want to do with my time? Do I really want to pursue nursing school? Do I want to, you know, is it going to be worth it? And I luckily I because I always thought if I found out I was positive, I was going to climb under my covers. And Mm. that was basically going to be like the end, you know, but I didn't do that. And then anyway, I got sick in 1999 and was diagnosed with AIDS. And I can remember being in the hospital. Mm. I was on isolation and it was like the most untouchable feeling you could ever have. Like they had to wear gowns and masks and all this stuff to walk in the Mm. room. And the doctor had basically said, you know, you've got a year to live if you don't go on these meds and we can put you on like a clinical trial. And I was like, okay, so and I I was only 20, 26 or 25 at the time. And so and I wasn't ready to die. So I went on the meds and I I got better. It took me a long time to like recover. Mm -hmm. And then I I moved to Chicago shortly after that. And then like fell into the party scene and got addicted. Mm
0: -hmm. And so,
1: you know, when you know, when you say the wounded part is like all of Mm -hmm. these things, all of these things that have been thrown in my life. And I have just not so well at first kept getting up and just going on. And it wasn't until like, I went to rehab in 2013 and learned what shame was.
0: Mm-hmm. and By someone uh, who shall go unnamed. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, that moment of finding out what that, what I had been running from or what mm-hmm. had, con- you know, the thing that had consumed me, like it's t- like, it took over my heart. It took over my life. And I, I really didn't know what it was. And at first it all started out, you know, the drugs started out as, as just having a good time and being fun. And mm-hmm. then it's the same as everyone's story. Yeah. It, it was fun until it wasn't. And then, yeah. it, it, you know, and then it was just like a, like a maintenance. It was horrible. It was like being a prisoner, you know? So five years ago I went to rehab and started learning about all of this, all the things that were making me sick Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, I embraced it. I embraced all of the, you know, the imperfections and all of the, all of those secrets and all the dark parts. <laughs> you know, at first I thought my life was going to be like that thing that people would be more accepting of gay people if they knew me. Yeah. Because yeah. Of- because of who I was and what I brought to the table. Mm. And then it became, you know, I was lucky enough to work with HIV patients in the early 2000s and like they helped me heal. They helped me recover from my, you know, my shame about the HIV. But that, you know, I regressed when I started using drugs and like once I started in in recovery, I've wanted to be as transparent as I could. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of like my ship, like caught on fire, and mm. all my friends, like they, especially my, my co workers, they all could see the ship was sinking and yeah. didn't know what to do about it. And luckily, Northwestern has this really great program for impaired nurses and Mm -hmm. um, they have been very supportive and I mean I did everything that I was supposed to do I was completely compliant because I knew my life was going to end if if I didn't recovery has been really easy for me it's been the other work all of the work on the childhood Mm and all the abuse and the shame resilience it's all that stuff that just when i thought i was feeling better yeah <laughs> like i would peel back the next layer and mm-hmm. and it's like it's always shame it's always shame that it it's, is
0: uh, motherfucker
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> goddamn shame yes But I am open about my journey with people. You know, the HIV thing, I kind of keep close to my chest still. But in the last couple of years, I have, you know, I've come out to my family about that, which I Mm -hmm. never thought that I, I never thought that I would. I thought, literally thought that I would die. Mm. If they ever found out. And yeah. it was like I was positive for 20 years until I told my brother. Right. And that just happened like last Thanksgiving. And
0: mm.
1: I know like the moment that those words came out of my mouth, you know, all these years I thought I would die. Yeah. And what happened was I I was filled with love. Yeah. And, or I was filled with God, Yeah. something, you know, that secret that I had nurtured for all those years, Mm -hmm. like something else replaced it. Yeah. And it's like, so since that, since that happened, like six, seven months ago, eight months ago, like I have this light inside of me that I, I don't know. I'm I'll, I don't know what to do with it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, it's there. Doesn't mean I don't, you know, I still have my days like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I struggle with perfection, the perfectionism, <laughs> <laughs> right. the fixed manage, control, like all of those things are my those are still what I what I'm working on. But so, yes, I relate to the wounded healer and I know that the biggest part of my journey has been has been healing myself. Yes. And I know like if I can heal myself, then there's hope for everyone else too. you just have to have the willingness to, to dig, Mm -hmm. you know, but the result has been astounding. Right. If you can do it, like I recommend it.
0: (laughs) Right. Before I, you know, pick particular things out of there that I want to dig into, I just first want to tell you, How precious your story is to me and the fact that you were willing to come on here and share with with an audience, you know, you have no idea who's going to listen to this. And for you to have that willingness to openly share the parts of you, the dark parts of you, I just I've been like tearing up over here the whole time and just like in chills. And that light that you talk about, I am 100% certain that everybody who listens to this episode is going to feel that. And you really, you really are a gift from God. You really are. And I am just so honored to have been a part of your journey and to continue to witness amazingness. It's just, it's just an honor.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, like as, and other people in here, in your podcast have said, like, would I have rather had another journey?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Would I rather had something else to overcome or something different, maybe something easier? I don't know. I think that, you know, there's a reason for all of these things in my life. And whether it was just to prove to myself that I have the strength and the courage to to face them and move on from them, I don't know. But I, I probably wouldn't choose a different path if I had if I had the choice.
0: Right. Someone was talking recently about and I think I might do this with the IOP patients is like having everybody write down like a particular part of their story that's really hard to own and then putting it in the center of the room and then having people go and choose Mm. what they want to take. And and, and most of the time people choose their own. Right. You know, ah, and I think that it speaks to kind of the bigger. Well, actually, okay. I want to say this. As you were telling your story, the word that came up for me was resurrection. And I think there's so much power in that word, especially for those of us who were raised in a religious family and who, you know, moved away from it and then came back to spirituality on our own terms. But that's what I heard is you have continuously resurrected, but not as the same person, but as a different a different person and yeah. a better version of John Brockwoman. Yeah. And that's a superpower.
1: It feels like a superpower sometimes. like And a superpower that I'm really glad that I have because I think that we need superpowers in order to, you know, actually in order just to get out of bed sometimes.
0: Oh my God, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I know like if I can overcome coming out in the 90s to a religious... Right? Mother and a redneck father, and if I can overcome getting HIV and AIDS, mm-hmm. and I can overcome you know a crystal meth addiction, like then I I can overcome anything. Like I can get out right? of that. Yeah, it doesn't even bother me if someone calls me fag on a train anymore. Or, you know, like anything right? anything small, I'm just like huh, you have no idea. So right yeah, so go so bring it. <laughs>
0: And it's funny, though, too, because I feel like, you know, you talked about perfectionism earlier and I don't know exactly for you, but for me, it's like, yeah, there are these big things like I've overcome, you know, my parents died in one year and all of the things in my life that have been really hard. The big things were almost easier than perfectionism because Mm -hmm. they were obvious. You know, there's an outpouring of support, you know, when you're going through a big thing like that, whereas when it's just this internal struggle that nobody can see but you can feel and it's excruciating and you it's like you don't know how to get out of it on your own. Like that's where the work is, I feel like.
1: And that's the thing. Like these big events are they're just that they're big events in my life. But every day I wake up and I want to be perfect. Right. Every task that I am faced without work or now with school, like every task I want to do perfectly. Like you've talked a lot about imposterism on here. Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, people are going to catch me in the act of whatever, of faking it or not Mm -hmm. really know, knowing what I'm doing. And that's scary.
0: Yeah, because I pretty much feel the exact same way that it's like, if you really knew what was going on in my head or if you really knew how much I didn't know or how much I question, you know, then you would never listen to me. Yeah, I I get that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, We're coming close to the end, and so I want to give you some space if you want to make sure to talk about anything other than what we have already discussed, which I feel like is a lot.
1: You know, I, I mentioned I just started my master's at Northwestern in healthcare quality and patient safety. And, you know, you said something about our system being broken, our our healthcare system being broken. And I was kind of like, you know, tumbling around with that in my mind. And, you know, I've been in in healthcare for 20 years now and I know one aspect of it and I know where I can make improvements in that Mm -hmm. one place. And I think that the next part of my career, I've hoped to focus on making things better for I don't know for everybody I think I think that stepping out of my comfort zone yeah and being unsure of what like what change one person can make in the world is like a scary prospect and really most of the time I just want to go right I mean I I could I could spend the next 20 years of my career working at the bedside and mm-hmm. and doing my thing there and really reveling in all of that you know that that's fulfilling for me but i'm like stepping out of my comfort zone and looking at a looking at a thing that is so foreign to me now and i don't know trying to find a a, a new place in the world where i can make things better for for everyone
0: i got to tell you this is so fucking crazy has nothing to do with what you're saying, but I'm I'm in my closet, as you saw when we first started this. And right in my line of sight, I have like all of my necklaces hanging on like a coat rack, basically. And I have two necklaces that were my mother's that I never wear, but I I just wanted to keep them because I wanted. Actually, I, I think I'd given one of them to her. So there's probably 50 necklaces over there and two of them are moving right now. Hmm. And they're my mom's necklaces. Wow. (laughs) So, and it's really funny because I always feel like I never get signs from my mom. I only get them from my dad. And I feel like my mom has been part of this conversation today and is like acknowledging to thank you for the work that you're doing already that you've done for people over the last 20 years and then moving into this place of of expanding and using your light and your gifts in order to change a system thank god right somebody has to do it
1: yeah i hope to find the right you know the right little niche because i know it's there and i know i have something that nobody else has and yeah. i you know, I hope that I can continue to like embrace mm-hmm. it and share it and, and expand it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, John, this has been such a pleasure. I can't tell you how excited I am to put this episode out because I think people are just going to lose their minds. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you're ready to be podcast famous. And God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you again for just being you and for being willing to share your story so intimately with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I, uh, you know, I hope that it, you know, resonates with somebody. And if it doesn't, that's OK, too.
0: Well, fuck those I, guys. I, yeah, well, fuck those guys.
1: <laughs> I was just really glad to be able to spend some time with you on a Sunday afternoon. So
0: right. Oh, John, you know, I love you with all my heart.
1: The feeling is mutual. <laughs>
0: Big thanks to John for joining me on the podcast today. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing. And thanks to Liam O'Donnell for the album art photo and Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information on John, to figure out how to connect with him, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. You can find Conversations with the Wounded Healer on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Thanks so much for sharing sharing your time with us. Bye-bye.